Welcome to the Inspired Peak Performance Flowcast. Drop in as we dive deep into the epic moments of high performance from around the world, where we aim to unlock the valuable insights into their vision and the strategies applied in the pursuit of their own version of greatness. We'll discuss the experiences that led them there and what state they were in when they arrived. I'm your host, Paul Price, and this is The Flowcast. Steve Monaghetti, how are you? Welcome to the Inspired Peak Performance Flowcast. G'day, Paul. Nice to be along. Um, I'm inspired. It's good to catch up. Nice to see a smiling face. Yeah, you too, mate. Um, I know you're bunkered down in lockdown right now in uh, sunny Ballarat. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, challenging was... times. You know, we've and I suppose it's the world we live in. You know, we. I'm a person who, who likes to sort of be in control of what they do. I'm a bit of a control freak and, um, it, you know, you've got to adapt in this current climate. It doesn't quite work that way. Other people make the rules and we work in around it. But um, I'm still able to get out for a run, just have to do it within the confines of, um, of the area. But we've got some pretty nice running spots here in Ballarat, so Paul, it could be worse. Yeah, yeah, and I know that, uh, that's one of the things that I guess you have uh, a little bit of luck on your side being a, being a runner and one of the things you love to do the most in your life is running and that, that's one of the things that you can actually still get out and do. But I am interested to know, though, do you have a, a perimeter that is it, can you only travel a certain distance? Because someone who can run the distances that you're capable of, that that sort of, you know, five, ten kilometre limit may not may be a bit too restrictive, is it? Yeah, a little bit, and it, it's meant to be within five kilometres. Now, I, I kind of go five kilometres as the crow flies, so, you know, you can get a long way if you sort of border 5K, you kind of get 20K if you thought of it as a square, so, and we manage to have, we've got trails, so we've got Lake Wendouree sort of in the middle, but we've also got Victoria Park and some trails there's some beautiful gravel path trails now that we use a lot and that would almost be within the fico we might sneak outside occasionally but we don't go too much further out than um than yeah. we're meant to go but um we are out exercising so we're kind of doing the right thing so people are flexible and what's yeah. been great to see i've got to say so many people out enjoying it you know i kind of get a bit pressure sometimes and on some of my trails and tracks, I kind of go, oh, no, hang on, these, these are my tracks. What, what are all these people doing out here? So it's kind of been a bit of a, a discovery and an invasion of my uh, my <laughs> quiet space or my personal space. But um, it's funny, yeah. you know, I, I often have um, conversations like this and I don't call these. These are not work for me. They're just having a bit of fun and a bit of a chat. But then I go for when I go to work, I go outside into my working environment, which is fantastic. So I've got the advantage of being able to do that in a in an outside workplace, which is a which is a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that's a, that's a you know massive benefit in itself, right? The actual the fact of being out in nature, getting amongst trails, different running, and and, and bringing exercise is such a it's such an important piece to our well-being and our mindset and our wellness. What I've noticed coming out of this with a lot of the people I'm talking to is that people are actually really able to connect now going, actually, yeah, getting outside for a walk in the middle of the day actually makes me feel pretty good. I actually like this. And it's sort of helping them connect to things that they may have neglected in their life. Hopefully, as we move into whatever's to come that this becomes a part of their routine now because there are so many benefits of getting out in nature and and exercising and combining the two together and doing it yeah and i think that's very true so and for me one thing i I try to do paul and this i probably that covid's allowed me to focus a bit more on that is i'm actually being in the in the moment a bit more so often when i go running you know, I'm I'm thinking about my day or what I've had to do, and you know, I might be thinking about what I heard on the news about this situation or that, and I'm sort of processing that. But what I am trying to actually do when I'm out running, and sometimes I'm running with other people, sometimes I'm running by myself, but I'm actually trying to be in the moment a bit more and say, okay, this is a time to probably forget about a lot of that sort of world issues and what's happening, and just maybe yeah. to just look around and take in what's what's happening in the forest or around the lake and you know the, I run in I run in similar places but they're always different I know that sounds strange but there's always something different happening there's different people around there's a different activity there's wildlife there's weather that changes it up so I'm trying to appreciate 
being in the moment and noticing something that I, that's a bit different today to what it was yesterday. So that's something I'm trying to do, you know, in a in a positive way to block out all the negativity and just take the world for what it is when I'm out exercising. Yeah, I love that. I can relate to that. That's something I've been trying to be mindful of as well, like that extra piece of presence, you know, drawing myself into that kind of more of a, a flow state um, more often in terms of being focused here and now, letting the sort of the noise, the chatter, the things sort of disappear at least for, you know, 30 minutes to an hour or whatever time you... And you have to do it, Paul. Sorry to interrupt, but you've got to do it. Yeah. Some, You know, I think um, often... You know, we're, we're having sort of so many instructions thrown at us. You know, people are telling us, these are the rules. This is what you've got to do. You're not allowed to do this. You've got to be here. You've got to do that. And and I think sometimes we've kind of got into a, an area where we, we we don't kind of take responsibility for our own decision-making sometimes. So you've got to, when you're out in the forest or you are out exercising, make an effort to actually take notice of things. Because if you don't, you, you'll kind of miss it. And you, no one's going to tell you. But you've got to look around and appreciate that that tree or that sound or that person. So you've got to make a bit of an effort to do it. So, you know, be back in control of your destiny. So, uh, you know, that sort of enhances what, you know, the experience for you. Take control of it a bit more and you, you will get a lot more out of the opportunity. And like you say, it could only be half an hour. It's half an hour in, in 24 hours. It's not actually that much, but it can be so valuable. It's not... It's not the length of the time, it's the quality of the experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, and and you said appreciate the little things, the different novelty moments that you kind of come across. You might be running the same track, but what is different about that moment can really, you know, trigger the brain into looking for positive things, right, and being grateful for that. Like there's a real, you know, the, the research around gratitude and appreciation that triggers that dopamine reward pathway that is kind of being suppressed at the moment in COVID times where we're being told to be stay home. We're told, you know, a lot of our things that we enjoy doing are being taken away from us. And neurochemically, that's playing a bit of, it's causing a bit of too much stress for many people. So being out and being able to get hyper-present and appreciate the little things, training your brain to actually look for that is a, is a super powerful way to sort of release some of that stress. And to be present in other areas of your life when you do get back for the run. I do get to spend more time with my family and appreciate the little intricacies of the of those moments that you may just sort of miss um, when you're sort of in the process or going through the motions of being at home. I've got to eat dinner, then I've got to get to do this and I've got to go do that. You know, so I think if if people can really take that time as you're suggesting to to focus, take control of their destiny, take control of their mind of what they're focusing on, where their attention goes, can really train them to do that, not just on outside exercising, but also when they are spending time working or with family or having a conversation, like teaching themselves to actually be engaged and more present in the moment is something we all need to, to improve on or can improve on with effort. Yeah, it reminds me of I used to say to, I used to talk to people and say you need almost exercise for an hour because you know it takes you sort of twenty minutes to get rid of all the shit that's going on in your day and yeah. then you kind of probably sort of have that twenty minutes in the middle where you do actually have sort of a clarity of thought and you've kind of freed your mind up to to let it race, let it have you know weird thoughts odd thoughts different thoughts and then there's kind of the 20 minutes probably at the back end when you kind of got to say oh okay that's all fine but now i've got to sort of go back to getting into the world back to normal life so it's almost having that kind of interruption to your daily routine that allows you to sort of step outside step off the the sort of merry-go-round and contemplate what is important in life and like you say probably then when you do get back home into the normal environment again you're probably a bit more aware and alert to signs and to see things with a different clarity because you've had that sort of um, presence of mind to contemplate that when you've been out exercising so it plays a valuable role whilst you're exercising but it also plays a really important role then for how you um, use the benefits of that in the rest of your day. Yeah, 100%. And what you said there, like that 20-minute period of like getting rid of the shit that comes up and like the scattered mind thing, like, and it's, you know, um, in the research and of flow science anyway, once you hit about 20 minutes of 
exercise, 20 to 25 minutes, you actually hit this place of transient hypofrontality, which means that the prefrontal cortex that governs all that scatteredness, time, um, all those things actually starts to go offline. So you can act, and which which is indicating indicating that you're actually about to step into more of a flow state, into that zone where pattern recognition and things come up, and you go, oh, that idea links with that, and da, 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 and then and then you sort of yeah, you, as you sort of start to become more consciously aware of going, oh, I'm about to end my exercise, and I've got to get back home, I've got to I'll get my drink. You start to become more conscious, and you start to bring the prefrontal cortex back online. You start to go, but there is a clarity and you've kind of started to trigger a flow state at that point, which is an you know, optimal state of being. So the science shows right, that. There is, there is science to my bullshit. Yeah, you, you know exactly <laughs> what you're about. making it up. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're on point. So, um, so yeah, that's super And cool. I think that it's almost, and I know I don't want to, I sort of don't want to harp on it, but it's such a unique experience as a runner to to get into that sort of that, it's kind of like you're floating and, and you, you get to a stage. It's a really unusual situation. And people talk about runner's high, but that runner's high, I think, is when you actually get back because you've had sort of, because of the pain that you're um, causing, you get sort of the um, um, endorphin release. And when you stop then running at the end, you've sort of got an overload of the endorphin because it's still releasing. So you get that runner's high. But I reckon it's actually more than that. It's sort of what you were talking about, this sort of, floating where you have a different your mind acts at a different level when you're out there so if you have this clarity of thought where you seem to get the signals match up a lot better you put it a lot better than i do but <laughs> sort of things you know where it was all jumbled and confused yeah. and sort of have external forces when you're running you sort of it's for some reason in that in that state you do you are able to link things together a lot uh, more efficiently and and I love to, I'd love to bottle that up when you're out there doing that because I've written some of my best speeches. I've solved world peace. I've had all these issues that I've got rid of whilst I'm out there. Then I come back and, and back into normal life and they, they disappear or I give that speech and it, it, it doesn't seem to have the impact <laughs> that I thought it did when I was out running. So I yeah. think you're also, there's the clarity of the thought, but then also I think your mind's in a state to accept it, Paul. And there's something about that sort of comfort or that that ability to be in a happy place. I know it sounds like I'm, I'm bloody, you know, sort of in, <laughs> going off in some fairyland, but you have this happy place and it allows you to just appreciate the, the simpler things and connect the dots a lot more simply. And um, I reckon it's, it's a, it's a, there's a lesson there somewhere, but how we then take that and then put it back into our normal lives and, and um, convert that over, that's the challenge. Yeah, and and there's you know distractions, different things that come in from all different areas, and overstimulation can block us from that flow. Of that so basically everything you just said is is on point. You know when we when we enter that zone of kind of clarity, our body has this ability to switch off the unnecessary parts of our brain that get in the way of that clarity, and that prefrontal cortex is one of the biggest ones because the other thing that lives in there is your inner critic, that nagging voice that says, "Yeah, I don't know." you're feeling a bit tired right now. I don't know if you can make it. Like, you, better, you might need to slow down a little bit, Steve. Or in my case, Paul, you might need to slow down more. Yeah. <laughs> you might need to speed up. <laughs> yeah, you might need to speed up. Like, my voice saying, yeah, no, screw that. Speeding up is not an option. Um, but it's that inner voice that kind of blocks us, puts limitations on what we're able to achieve and gets in the way of good ideas connecting and, and thoughts. And that's where flow state is so powerful because when we're in that zone, our sense of self, our timeless timelessness, action awareness emerge, all these things sort of start to happen. It's because the brain's just sort of, it shuts down the unnecessary bits that stop us from performing at our best. When you do have those ideas, you know, you want to try and get them down on paper as quickly as possible once you've had them. Um, but a little bit tough when you're out running in the, in the woods, but but yeah, you... I sometimes like to think, you know, the old, remember when we, we used to have dictaphones and, you know, I've, yeah. I've carried a couple. I used to write a few articles and stuff. So I'd carry my dictaphone along and I'd get it down that way. And that was not bad. I felt like it was a bit of an intrusion. I know it's weird. It's weird to say it, but I, I like to, I like people to experience it. And if I was to actually then write down some of those ideas and things, uh, don't know, it just doesn't quite have the impact 
um, that it had when I was experiencing it. And sometimes I think writing it down and, and passing that um, the words onto somebody else is not as as good as having them actually experience it. So mm. whilst you can write down the clarity of thought and all that, I, I think you need to be in that state to appreciate um, the the, me the message or the the depth of the words that you've written down. Yeah. And the other thing that's interesting about when you are in that state, and this is a great, you touch on a great point here, is sometimes you don't want to trust trust what you come up with in that moment because because there's so much dopamine running through your system in that state, everything feels good. You've got endorphins, you've got anandamide, you've got all the you've got six of the most potent neurochemicals known to man flooding through your system all at the same time. And so everything feels good. Every idea kind of connects to the next one, to the next one, to the next one, and you can write them down. It's in that last stage of the flow cycle, they call it recovery, where you actually can look back and go, what was I even talking about? Like that doesn't seem impactful. That doesn't feel like it did when I was in flow. So it's actually a good way to reflect on your thoughts and your ideas once you come out of that state and you are in more of a recovery phase to look at it without that feel-good chemistry running through your system. And if you find that, oh, that's a powerful idea, like that's really powerful or that's impactful, when you're in that recovery stage, then you know you've got something really, really awesome. But it definitely allows you to take that next step of connecting ideas and thoughts. But the back end of that with the oxytocin and serotonin and the feel-good chemicals that sort of, and you alluded to this earlier, the, the, running, the runner's high comes at the end, you feel. Um, that's at the back end. Those chemicals come at the back end of that flow state. So that may be where we experience that type of runner's high type feeling. Um, but flow, But being in flow kind of gets us to that place at the end once we kind of finish and I used to not enjoy running at all it was way too painful as a squash athlete <laughs> as a squash athlete everything had to be fast curious and kind of engaged with the ball and all that sort of stuff and then later in my life I I was invited to do a running race in Canada and um it was 13 kilometers and I'm like all right I'll have a crack I'd never run more than 10 kilometers in my life but I, up until this point I had ran in probably about eight years and um, so I did it and I experienced that flow state and I was like, wow, this is powerful. Then a few weeks later, we moved back to Melbourne, Australia. And a month later, I signed up for the Melbourne half marathon and did that. And I just got, and I, and this whole experience of running, I got that feeling and I was drawn to it and addicted to it. And it's, and it's quite powerful. It is an addiction. There's no doubt about that. I think the uh, thing with running and marathon running slightly different to your circumstances where it's kind of the fast fix because you've got measurable points, you know, a point, a, a game, a match that all sort of add up to an outcome. Whereas in, in the marathon, it's kind of there's one outcome where you, and you don't get there for a very long time. So you've got to wait for a while. The ups and downs along the way, you do. So it's all kind of part of the journey. So you learn to deal with the journey while it's happening, whereas probably in the squash analogy, you know, you're stopping the point. You can reassess. You can probably have a timeout. You can't have a timeout in, in running. You don't, you know, we don't all decide in the marathon, all right, timeout, we're all going to stop oh. and we're going to just analyse what's happening here. So you, you've got to deal with it on the run. In my marathons, you can do that, Steve. You can. <laughs> well, that's right. I wanted to stop a few times, I tell you. But um, so I think there's a difference in, in that you have to, so you have to process it as you're going. And it's a bit, you know, I like to think, you know, you, you can have each situation works well in its own way, but you need to identify it. But in life, sometimes, you know, you, you know, you feel like you're kind of running a marathon because yeah. you want to get off for a while, but you can't. You just got to deal with it along the way. And sometimes we, we may need to stop at a drink station and you need to recognize that. And, you yeah. know, it's not, you're not keeping up with everyone else because at the end of the day, it's about you getting across the marathon finish line in the best shape you can. And the best thing to do that might be to stop and let the pack go for a while whilst you don't want to. That's the best thing for you personally. So, you know, that in, in a life situation, it, there's probably some good analogies there that, you know, you need to own the decision, even though it's a public event and you're in there with a lot of other people that are running around in the world with you, you also need to be very aware of where you are in that in the whole scheme of things and deal with that in in isolation so yeah that's that's you know the marathon analogy whereas you know from a squash perspective you know you have you have every day you set little goals and you and you have yeah. little 
points that you can um, benchmark and learn from. So they've both got their, their positives and negatives. And I yeah. tend to analyse situations. You, you do it from a neurological perspective. I do it from a, a social perspective and try and use not stats, but situational analysis to um, improve how I get value out of my life, but also how I have a positive effect on those around me. Yeah, no, I love that. And there's definitely some, uh, you know, drawing on that, like life is life is a marathon. It's not a you know, sprint, but there's definitely, not a sprint. Moments, <laughs> definitely moments where you need to pull back and, and rest and recover and recharge a little bit. And there's definitely times where you do need to sprint a little bit, but you just, yep. you just can't keep sprinting and get to a, you know, 42-kilometre uh, checkpoint um, feeling okay. <laughs> You know, it feels like you guys are sprinting in comparison to the rest of us. But um, so I'm curious relative. To, to dive into that, you know, a little bit what you're talking about here in terms of, you're right, in terms of my sport, we have immediate feedback in a point to point to point to point. We know where we are in comparison to our opponent all the time. And and we've got to do our best to, to ignore that, to, to, to drown out the comparison of what's happening with the opponent, but yet be aware of them. Um, and we're in very close proximity um, all the time. In running, some of your best results, like the gold medal at the, uh, the Commonwealth Games amongst your silver and a couple of bronze there, and your bronze medal at the World Championships. When you are in that moment, like what are the, what are the things that actually keep you in that focused state? Because there's a lot of silence. There's a lot of gap. As you said, there's a long time between start and finish before you kind of understand where you're at. So what are the, what are those mental checkpoints for you along the way? And how do you keep your mind from that chatter we talked about, that constant sort of voice? And so I'm really curious to know your strategies around how you stay hmm. focused and on point. Well, you practice it in, in training. So, you know, you can't do it. You can't run a marathon in training, not at race pace, or, or you'll take a long time to recover from it. So you do practice little snippets of it. So, you know, my fartlek or or um, the sessions that we would do during the week would be where we put ourselves in that environment, but we know we're going to get out of it. So it's for a limited point of time. So you have sort of little exposure. It's a bit like, um, you know, having a, a flu injection or I'm not sure if, if COVID is the same, but, you know, they, they put a little bit of the flu back, the virus in and your body builds up immunity to it. And so that's kind of what we sort of do in that we can't replicate a marathon, but we can replicate little bits of it. So, and then it really comes back to probably, um, so that's, they're the short snippets. And then I reckon it comes back to your overall, you know, I have a really good capacity to stick to a goal and to train like twice a day every day for 10 years is kind of what I was doing to prepare. So there's kind of the, the quick little fixes in your training and then there's your overall attitude. It's probably what I'm born with. So I'm kind of taking some of the um, the, the um, fibres that, you know, my parents um, developed with me and the environment that I grew up in to make me stubborn, um, tough, persistent. So then you get in a race and you have to put that into practice. And it's almost the challenge of the first thing is I'm, I'm going to beat the marathon distance. So it's almost a test of you putting all of those components together to get to the finish line and think you've won. Either the marathon wins or you win. Normally yeah. the marathon wins, to be perfectly <laughs> honest, but we, we tend to pretend that you know we, we have a, a pretty good race and we, and we get it done and the commonwealth games is a classic example of that when i won the gold in 94 there was a pack of us we we're pretty slow through halfway i felt really good i took off a couple of africans came with me i think and then i ran the last 10k basically by myself so i but i kept pushing and pushing and i ended up winning you know, sean quilty came through the other australian came through but with pat carroll the second australian was he finished in second place so I was about three minutes ahead. So what I was doing then was racing against the marathon. And all I had to do in my mind was say, if I actually run against the event here, that is going to distance me from second and third, and I'm guaranteed a gold. It's a weird yeah. way of thinking. You win gold if you beat second. So I was yeah. holding off second and third by running as fast as I could to, to get my best marathon out. So that's a good situation where you realize that you're in control of winning. In other events, 
you know, like the World Championships in 97, I was third. The two people up the road were, were out of sight. So I was still thinking I was holding them, but I was most concerned about sort of running through and, and winning and consolidating that third medal, third place. So what you are doing, though, is you're fighting an external battle against the marathon event itself and the opposition, mm. but you also got this internal battle. So, you yeah. know, you, you, you're checking in and you're kind of going, oh, legs, you know, we're going to go up a hill in, in a couple of K, get ready. It's going to be really tough. And your legs are going, well, it's really tough now, mate. So, you yeah. know, how, how are we going to be able to do that? So you're almost sort of doing this, this extrinsic read of the marathon and the field, but then you're doing the internal stuff where how's my breathing going? It's okay, legs, we're going to get a drink at the next drink station. That'll fuel you up a little bit. It's almost you're playing a game. Was that constant? Yeah, that, that you'll internal, get through. That internal dialogue, is there a constant negotiation going on throughout this period? It's a long time to be negotiating with your internal um, emotions and feelings and how the legs are feeling, how the, you know, the, the arms, the back, the, the different body and how the head's feeling. Like, is it, you know, what, so what's some of the... Um, that's a great question, dialogue. Paul, because what what I have to do is, because you cannot, and, you know, I'm I'm saying, um, you know, I'm only out there for two hours, ten minutes, people are out there for four and five hours, but the difference for us, I don't want to be, it's not sounding like I'm big-noting myself, but we are running 20, we're running really hard for the two hours that we are out there. So it is impossible to concentrate at that level for, for two hours. So you have to disassociate. So what I would do is I'd be running along and I'd get my drinks. I'd get out of the drink station and have a bit of a drink and, and there's sort of a bit of shuffling in the field. And then we'd settle down a little bit. So what I'd say then is I'd say, all right, okay, now just relax now. You're okay. You've got your drink. Try and conserve a bit of energy. And I might, I might actually look around and, and say, oh, gee, it's, wow, that's beautiful. You know, Great Ocean Road. Gee, wow, what a beautiful ocean out there. Oh, the waves are kicking up. I wonder if there's any surfers out there so I give myself an opportunity to have a, a little mental rest. Yeah. And what that does, it's a bit like we are talking about before, where you get in a state where at least you're controlling the mind and you're not, you're not working the mind. You're giving the mind a little bit of a break for the time. And you're taking in a few of these other things. You're having a bit of a look around. You might have a chat, a bit of a quick um, smile or a bit of banter with one of the other runners or someone on the side. And then... You click, you click back on. You're going to go, great, all right, now I'm back on. And you are so much more alert because you've had that break. So yeah. whereas if you're just kind of in that sort of same state, you get a bit, it's a bit normalised and you just kind of get worn out and it just goes on and on and on and on. Whereas if you break it, you actually can come back and you're sharp again. So it's kind of like you're yeah. sharp, you're on. Okay, we need to get ready here, gee, because this is a crucial part of the race. And that's where using mental imagery. I used to watch videos of the course so I'd know which section we were coming up to. So there were definite parts of the course that were, I needed to take a lot more seriously than the others. Yeah. I'd always run the last 8K of a course. So I knew if I was leading, that was where I was going to make my move and break away or if someone else went, I knew I couldn't let them go. So that's when you need to be alert. So it yeah. was actually really planning so I did all the planning physically in all of my training and the number of miles and, and sessions I did, but I also planned mentally so that I was getting my best race mentally um, and, and that was maximising the result then, both mentally and physically. And yeah. people underestimate that. People don't think you ever train. Like, I don't have anyone ringing me up going, oh, I want a, I want a bit of training advice on, you know, um, Disassociate. They never. They always want to know my secret to my best session to to be a good marathon runner. They always want the training session. They don't want the mind stuff. That's also such an important part of. You know, I, I was at the top of the world world marathon running for fifteen years. That's not an accident. It doesn't. It's not just luck. You know, you've got to plan and prepare for that and yeah. be have a really good awareness of what's going on both physically and mentally. Yeah, I think I think that's. I mean, generally, most for most part people underestimate that that mental resilience and that the, the decision making that goes on like that that moment where you go being a bit more i'm being too focused on the pain here and the stress and i'm sort of having too much conversation here to have that skill and the aptitude to go no no what about the surface and the game and trying to appreciate like that's 
where I get some of my athletes I work with now and even some of the executive people going, when you get into that sort of stressed situation, you know, you've got to take your mind to a different place. You've got to, and gratitude, appreciation, mindfulness is a great way to do that. And in a way, that's kind of what you're suggesting is going, oh, what are the trees? You know, I wonder if there's any surfers out there. Like, because you can't be appreciating the waves and be like distressed about, you know, the lactic acid in your leg and the buildup and feeling like, fuck, I've got a hill coming up. How am I going to handle this? You can't be thinking those two things at the same time. So, and having the ability to do that and know when to do it is really, um, it's a game, it's a game changer because it buys you that freedom, it buys you that rest, it buys you that neurochemical recovery that will impact the physiology and the way your body operates as well. So, but I'm really curious to know when, when you come to that stage of the race and you touched on this about imagery, visualization, knowing those markers going, it's eight kilometers left, visualize this moment. I know it. Mm -hmm. So for you, was there any specific trigger? And by trigger, I mean, was there a, a, a phrase, a, a physical thing that you just sort of said, this is the moment and go? Or was it, you know, what, what was that moment? How did you determine it and how did you switch it on? Right. Well, this will, this, I'm not sure if this will answer the question, but what I, I always tried to put it back to something that I was comfortable and familiar with. So a lap of the lake is around Lake Wendouree is six kilometres. And I grew up on one side of the lake. It's kind of the track around there is named after me. It's kind of my spiritual home. So seven laps of the lake is a marathon. And I would break it up into those laps of the lake. So, you know, people say, oh, well, you go through halfway. Well, halfway was never, you know, I, I tell people, oh, yeah, that's where you turn around, you start heading for home. But in my world, halfway was never halfway in the race because that's three and a half laps of the lake. So I'd rather go to four laps of the lake and have three to go. So I, I'd done four and I still had three to go. So for me, when I went through, you know, the 35K mark, Everyone goes, well, you know, that's your second last drink station. That's the most important drink station. Well, for me, it was, but it was 1K before I hit 36K. When I got to 36K, Paul, one lap of Lake Wendell ready to go. Yeah, so that was real. They were quite significant moments to me. And what I would try and do is I'd try and have a point. So, you know, if there was a turn there or a hill there, that was also a trigger for me to go, all right, we've got one lap of Lake to go. It's game on. I'm going to surge this hill or I'm going to get a gap so that I'm out of sight. So when I go around that turn, the person who's in second loses visual contact with me. So that psychologically is a really strong point for me. So I was okay. using the normalised home environment and then applying it to the race situation that I was about to put myself in or, or that I was in. Yeah, I love that, that familiarity of something comfortable something home something that you know as you said a spiritual home for you to connect that feeling so when you when you actually did get to that you know 36k mark and you go one one lap of lake Wendore to go was there a visual represent like did you did you actually picture the lake did you picture the lake and the scenery and stuff because in, in my head when you said it i'm i'm imagining lake Wendore and it's i it's been many, many a year since I've been to Lake Wendell, but this just this image and this serene image comes up and this pleasantness. Did that was there a specific image or was it you just sort of like was there another image that kind of correlated with that? To be honest, it was more the knowledge that having done six laps, this seventh lap is longer. And it's it's a weird because in my own mind. I'm saying, well, it's not longer. It's still 6K and it's still one lap. But I'm kind of going, well, but this lap's harder than the previous six. So you're almost fighting. I, I wasn't thinking of the serene water and the beautiful environment. What I was thinking, okay, it is only one more lap, but for some reason this lap's harder than the six I've oh, done yeah. before. So I'm kind of, I'm dealing with that mentally. I'm kind of thinking, oh, but I've got to block that out because I've got three guys who are on my shoulder Mm. And they're about to surge because we're getting near the finish. So I don't want to be thinking that this lap's harder than the previous six. What I want to be thinking is it's only a lap to go. What a positive thing. I'm going to go and I'm going to drop these guys that are on my shoulder. So it's it's the fight of realize realization is that I'm getting fatigued 
and I'm about to slow down and this is about to get really bloody hard mm. compared to, yeah, but I've done six laps. I've only got one to go and this is the positive side of it and all the pain's going to be worth it. It's only, I know, you know, I'm running at three minutes K, so it's 18 minutes. I've only got 18 minutes of running to go and I'm going to have this, and I, you know, what do I say? 18 minutes of pain for a lifetime of memories and talking about it on this podcast and telling everyone what a great feeling it is. So, so you know, that's the positive side of it. But you're fighting these demons as well as fighting the people who are on your shoulder because they're having the same conversation with them. Yeah, exactly. So is their seventh lap of the lake going to be better than my seventh lap of the lake? Well, if it is, I've got a fight in my hands. So it's that battle that you're having. And the physical fatigue is clouding your mind. So it's, it's, it's a lot of the pain receptors are, are saying, I don't give a shit about Lake Wendery right now. I'm just yeah. dealing with the pain that we're getting here. You're in Lake Pain, buddy, not Lake Wendery. Yeah. Right <laughs> that's right. So, so that's the, and it's hard for people to understand that unless you've been in the position. But, and, and as people say, well, yeah, I do that when I'm running a five hour marathon, or you might've done that when you were running your marathon. But you do it over an extended period of time, whereas I've got to make really, really high-level decisions and it's yeah. a high-level fatigue and it's a high-level pain that yeah. I, I don't want to downplay your pain, but your pain's sort of drawn out over probably an hour. My 18 minutes is a full-on 18 minutes. It's, yeah. it's the real deal. So you need, to, you need to be able to have a mechanism to be able to not block it out, but accept the pain, allow the pain, say, okay, we're not going to die here. It's all right. It's only 18 minutes. We are getting really fatigued. I know you're thinking that if we stop, the pain goes away. And I'm an intelligent person. Seems a logical thing to do, but we'll be okay. We're not going to die. In fact, what we're going to do is we're going to really challenge ourselves because I want to beat these suckers who are on my shoulder. So it's, you're kind of, you're really in this quandary, but you, you're kind of having a, of trying to have a rational decision with yourself or conversation with yourself yeah. to get an outcome that you're going to be proud of. Because when you cross the finish line, you know, I look down at the crest and, you know, there's Australia, Australia logo on my singlet and I kind of go, well, I'm doing this for more than just me. It's, and when you do get to the finish line, you are so proud. You're less proud of your result. You're proud of those decisions that you made along the way that allowed you to get the result. And that's the thing. I know it sounds weird. I haven't had this conversation with people before, Paul, but they're the things I'm most proud of because I've had really challenging conversations in the race. I've had them minimally in training, but the consequences are not that important. But in a race, when you're running the Olympic marathon, those conversations I'm having allow me to be the respected person who's, whose people around Australia admire for having a go and doing the best they possibly could. Well, those decisions I made during the race allow me to be that respected person and get the result that I did. So yeah. you, don't, you don't get it from the result. You get it from the journey you go on and the learnings that, and the experiences you have within the event that allow you to get the result. And that's really important for people to understand that. Yeah, I love that. And, and thank you for sharing that because it's such a untalked... We, we talk about that part of the journey, but... And this is sort of, you know, when I get asked myself, you know, what was what is the thing you're most proud about in your squash career? And, you know, the usual answers of like, you know, we won back-to-back -back world team championships and I was a British Open finalist, Commonwealth Games bronze medalist, da 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 They're the usual things that come to mind and really that's what people generally want to hear. But if you say, you yeah. know what, it's actually the, the, the negotiation, the fact that I got up every day and went and did 400s or went to the gym or went down to training or stayed longer and hit more squash balls and went through the pain and the torture and the self-sabotage and the, the mental fight and struggle um, and the loneliness that comes with a lot of it. Like I, I, I think about all that that I went through and go, that's, that's powerful. Like that, I'm proud that I, I got through that and I got through it and I got some the results and, and generally, when you when you are representing your country, you're able to draw on that a lot more. There's a because you know that thing. There's a bigger thing attached to this outcome and result um, or moment in time. You are doing it for more than just yourself in that moment. And yeah, it's interesting you say that though, and people don't want to hear that because it's not the sexy bit. It's uh, they kind of go, yeah, we do that too. We get up in the morning and we make some hard decisions and we do this and. And you kind of go, yeah, 
It's true. You do. You do exactly what I do, except that I do it, you know, representing my country or on a, on a world stage. Oh. So it's seen to be more important. It's actually no, it's no more important that oh. the decision making yeah. they're crucial. We all make them, but the outcome for us seems to be a, a lot more um, desired or, or, or praised more, but the, the, yeah, the journey itself is no different for anybody. And we want to normalize that. That's why we're having this conversation because everyone has the opportunity to run their Olympic marathon or, or win their world doubles title, but they've got to, it's still, it's not, it's not the event or the occasion. It's the, the decision-making and the processes we went through that people want to hear from us. And what yeah. I'm hoping is then they can relate that to their own situation so that, you know, yeah. they, they have a good journey as an outcome as well, both physically and mentally. Yeah, you're right. You know, we, we glorify the element of performance or, or result um, and we, we tend, to, tend to not really glorify the, the trench work and contextualising and, and and I think it's a big lesson for people. And it took me a long time to actually realize this myself from coming from that world of being a, a high-performance athlete to go, oh, all of these lessons are transferable into everyday life, mental resilience, well-being, positivity, you know, self, that, that negotiation of like, should I get, should I eat the ice cream or shouldn't I eat the ice cream? All these things that we, you know, everybody as humans go through these same processes we do it in front of an audience um, and it gets glorified but the parent getting up the, you know the single parent getting up in the morning with two kids that are just battling and just you know those decisions to go no I can get through this next hour I can get through this you know COVID is a great example of all of us running this this race and this mental battle that we're all facing the moment we wake up you know the decisions we make moment to moment and how we handle that um, I just like running a, you know, that last 18 minutes sometimes. Yeah, it, it can hurt. Yeah. And we do it in an event. So we, we can contextualize it because we have a match, a yeah. game, a tournament, an event, a marathon to run. So we kind of have, have sort of the, 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 the title, but yeah, we yeah, like right. Yeah. yeah Whereas in actual fact, in actual fact, we're, we're, uh, we're not as strong as, uh, most other people because we know we've got a finish line we know we've got an end we know this is not going to last for days and days and days and days so but there's a lot of contextualization and, and lessons to be drawn from that and um i think what you shared was was brilliant um and and i think the reason we get up out of bed every day to do what we do is because we have a passion for it and i know passion's an unusual word and i can use the word but passion actually keeps me working hard getting up every day because I love what I do and and the love and the enjoyment it's, kind of, it's like the scales you know I'm a Libran so the scales you know if the negatives outweigh the positives you'll stop doing it but for me the positives continue to outweigh the negatives so I continue to do it and and you know I think you know that passion um, finding something that we love you know it's allowed us to probably learn more from it because we've experienced you know, been, we've exposed ourselves in those events more because we've got a passion for it. And the passion will outweigh the, the, the bad parts, but you still have your ups and downs along the way. But luckily, we know the overall package is something we're happy and, and content to stay involved in. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's a, a really good point. Passion, what's well, one of the five key drivers of that intrinsic motivation, you know, passion, purpose, curiosity, autonomy and mastery, you have kind of five drivers of intrinsic motivation so when you tap I need in, to write those down mate what are they i'll, I'll replay <laughs> it i'll get those back yeah. we'll have the recording i'm curious to know the other four <laughs> um, but passion purpose curiosity and then autonomy and mastery so something you're passionate about curiosity will help you find what you're passionate about and if you continue to be curious about it then you're kind of fueling your own passion um purpose like having a sense of purpose attached to it so something that's greater than in yourself or a big high hard goals is where goals are really important they help us our brain focus on that attention and then your ability to have autonomy is really important and especially in people in this is where i think with people's autonomy have been taken away from them with lockdown and that's one of our intrinsic motivators the thing that kind of drives us and quite often if autonomy is connected to passion and passion is being removed as well because of certain restrictions or we're going to find ourselves in an unmotivated place 
quite quickly. So you need that level of autonomy or at least the ability to, to find where you can have autonomy. We talk about micromanagement. So is that like, is that a, something like a gym owner at the moment where they've been told, they love, they have a passion for getting people fit and working with their clients and things. So that passion's been removed because the gym's been closed down. So they've got no um, passion and, and obviously no autonomy. Yeah. So it's really important that the people in those sort of situations can go, okay, I need to, I need to think outside the box a little here and I need to find how can I create autonomy in this, within this framework and how can I still attach myself to my passion? What can you control? Going back to that controllable, what can you control and, and attach that going, oh, no, I get to choose that. I get where you direct that passion, purpose, um, curiosity, autonomy and mastery. So mastery is an interesting one as well, like the, the act of getting better. Like we want to know that we're improving in that thing that we're passionate and curious about. When you find when people are engaging in those things and you've got those intrinsic drivers lined up, that's when people kind of just, they skyrocket, right? That's when, but you limit those on people and you take away that. Those five key things are really important for people to tap into right now, especially today. Yeah. And, and this is where... Well, and it's interesting. You need all of them though, because if one's missing, then then the, the set's not, isn't complete, is it? So it's, yeah. it's, it's that middle management. I think, you know, some people often... You know, they can be working and then they get a promotion and they start to manage and then they're managing the people they're working with and often, you know, they feel like they've got to tell them what to do rather than sort of have that empathy of bringing them along, keeping, allowing them to still have the passion and autonomy without yeah. telling them what to do because that's what you think. You're, you're now the boss. You have to tell them what to do. Well, no, you have to actually just bring them along on the journey. And it's almost, yeah. you know, it's it's not abusing your power. It's realising that you are in a different position, but you still have the opportunity to empower the staff that you're yeah. now um, the boss of. And that's yeah. the challenge, isn't it, with all of those? And, you know, having your own, yeah, it's a, it's a good conversation. It's a long conversation to have. It's probably not. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 if we go down that pathway now, if we veer down that way, we, we might be here for another couple of hours, mate. <laughs> but, um so let's let's sort of um, let's just sort of bring this back a little bit and sort of I'm, there's one thing I'm really curious about your your opinion on, and this is something this is something I was aware of over the Olympic Games that was on um, recently that you know Team Australia did phenomenal and and there was this element this level of culture and sense of belonging and community that I'd never experienced at that level and this is just my perspective from an outsider looking in at this stage um, there seemed to be a lot more um, cohesiveness amongst the Australian team but not just the Australian team but also amongst competitors so there's one thing I want to I want to touch on with you know do you feel like COVID has enhanced that and brought people closer together and then the second part of this I want to touch on with you and get your thoughts on is there seemed to be a hell of a lot of personal bests um, smashed at these Olympic Games and I'm curious to know your thoughts on you know, why do you think that is? And do you think that because there's been so many restrictions taken away from athletes on how they normally train and compete as much, that they've actually been able to focus solely on their own performance without the distraction of comparison or other environmental factors that come into blocking their own performance and distracting them, that they're able to just sort of solely focus on themselves as an individual and improve themselves rather than worrying about what everyone else is doing. I, I completely agree with what you're saying. I think the first thing is we had, um, you know, we had so much um, um, anxiety and, and levels of um, worry that the games weren't going to go on at all. So, and I think we kind of got through that phase sort of 12 months ago. And then once we realized the games were going to go on, it allowed athletes to say, okay, Right, they're going to happen. So now let's get back to what what to them is more of a normal life. So, and the appreciation for actually the organisers to get the games on, I think, was apparent because in the lead up there was so much attention on it. So I think we're all aware. Every athlete, there's no way an athlete couldn't have been grateful for getting on the plane or getting off the plane and getting into Tokyo and having the opportunity to compete at the Olympic Games. So mm -hmm. that was definitely in the, in the mindset. But I think more importantly was it was, the, it was the focus of their year. So a lot of the training and lead up was done at a domestic level 
which I think was a really good thing because they weren't tra tripping around the world, having a great time, competing in all these other events. And I don't want to pick a particular example, but I'm going to, and hopefully <laughs> she won't take this in the wrong way. But Ash Bartley wins Wimbledon, comes to the Olympic Games two weeks later and gets beaten in the early rounds. Now, she's gone to the top of the mountain. She's come to the Olympic Games and sort of, oh, yeah, I want to win here and I probably will win, but I'm going to have to probably, you know, play a bit. And you, so she had, it wasn't, the timing wasn't great for her. Mm. And I think the result reflected that. Now, for a lot of other people, there was no Diamond League happening before the Olympics. There wasn't any of this international competition for a lot yeah, of the athletes. No so the focus was all just staying at home, really focused on our technique, our training, our lead up, all, all that stuff we spoke about earlier. Normalise, it was really a focus on your own personal training, being in your home environment and doing the, all the preparations for the Olympic Games rather than being shooting off all around the world, different climates, different weather, time zones, and then going to the Olympics and you're, you're stuffed because you've just got there and you're glad you made the Olympic team, but you didn't really care because I've been racing in Europe the last six months. So I think... The focus on um, solely on the Olympic Games allowed the preparation to be a lot more thorough, less risk and more opportunity to perform at your best at the Games. So it wasn't the end of a long season. It was kind of the pinnacle of what we'd been working for. And we were grateful for getting there. So there was a positive feel about it. Also, there were no spectators. There were no, and I know this sounds funny, but God, you, you know, when I was the chef at Com Games teams, sometimes you don't want people around your athletes because they're a distraction they're an emotional um tie there are there's just there's a lot more emotion and personal feelings and you know you're worrying about how they're feeling your expectations all that sort of stuff so i actually think having no spectators and no supporters there to some degree can aid performance now that will will yeah. scare people and really be definitely a uh, that, a that's a real, but i think I love, it's not a bad thing yeah, I love that. I love that point and the fact that, you know, and from coaching at the Commonwealth Games you know, on the Gold Coast here, the squash team, the amount of times of the conversation around, oh, I need to get tickets for my family or I need tickets for this and my family's coming at this time. And so the athletes having to deal with that distraction, the emotional, you know, oh, I need to go out and say hello to my family. And so that's a really good, interesting point to um, to bring yeah, up. And I think a lot of the time that that sort of emotion and again, I'm not, I'm jumping. This has got no scientific background or anything, but I think a lot of that emotion and all of that, it, it wears you down and you don't, it doesn't allow you to have the emotion of dealing with that in the event. So yeah. I think sometimes you've got a limited bag of emotion. You know, you've done all the physical prep, you've done your mental prep, and you've probably got emotional prep. And if your, nice. your bag of emotional prep is used up on all this other stuff and going to Europe or your family and all this stuff, then it's gone and you can't replace that. So yeah. maybe this combination of this, this cake recipe is, you know, your physical performance and it was peaking for the Olympics because you hadn't had other events. You know, your, your mental performance was strong because we didn't know the Olympics were going to be going on at all. So you're grateful for getting there. So it was a very strong focus mentally on that. And then your emotional bag was full because, you know, you went on the plane as a team and you bonded with your team mates and team members and, and then you performed with, you know, that emotional bag full in, over different days and through the tournament, you know, and you weren't getting worse as, as the tournament was getting on. You're actually getting better and yeah. peaking at the right time. So there's a combination of a few things that I think we yeah. can bottle up again. We're trying to get the bottle. We've got to, we've got to, got to get a big bottle out of this, Paul, but yeah. <laughs> you know, bottling all of that up could probably be a bit of a recipe for success. And it's probably not what athletes want, want to hear sometimes, not what coaches want to hear, personal coaches, not what families want to hear, but it's probably the truth that our performance yeah. was good for a number of reasons and we need to analyse what those reasons were and replicate that in the future. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and as you, you touched on something really fascinating that I hadn't actually connected yet was in terms of the fact that that emotional, and I totally agree because that, the biology of the way we work emotionally, you know, if we're using energy up on resources or using our resources on things that actually drive us away from performance and then, uh, you know, deplete that neurochemistry that we need for focus and peak performance is being used up prior or daily before we actually even get in the pool or get on the track or get, you know, on the court or on the field, well, then you're kind of starting behind the eight ball already. 
But it, but that space of not having to deal with that emotional connection, and I touched on this going, do you feel like the Australian team were more cohesive, that there was a, a tighter bunch this, this time around, because that emotional attachment, that sense of belonging, was now actually governed by my teammates. Like I've got to lean on these people. Now, they had the Correct. space and energy to actually connect yep. on a deeper level and because on a shared experience rather than one athlete going off seeing family and then back and forth. Yep. So they actually became tighter through that process. Yeah, and I reckon that's true as within teams. So in, in a tournament like a basketball or hockey, but also in the overall team because you felt genuinely like they were your teammates. And sorry, distractions coming in there, but that's they right. were your teammates. So. I think that's the difference, and you know, I know that because having been in, you know, in management in on the Gold Coast and in teams, you want to bond the whole team together, and that's really difficult because they're all off sort of doing their own thing. But in this instance, the fact that the Olympics were delayed twelve months probably was an emotional bond that when you got there, you really did use that emotion to bond with your. your they were your mates over there. You didn't have external emotional attachments to yeah. hang your hat on. So you did, yeah, I, I think, I really think there was genuinely something in that, in that not, it wasn't a forced emotional bond that you had with your teammates, but it was because you didn't have other distractions and other areas to, to fulfill yeah. that emotional um, baggage. You, you did it with, with your teammates and it provided a really good Australian culture. Yeah, no, I love that. And it reflected in results, but it's not only about results. I know we look at the results and we say in the Paralympics going now, good results, but it also adds to the, if you have good results, it also normally means that you've got a good culture within the team. So every athlete, every team member has a, a positive experience as well. So it's not only reflected in results, it's reflected in having a good experience. Yeah, some challenges, but some, some big opportunities there and some epic results. And I... I, for one, have felt, you know, squash is not an uh, Olympic sport. Um, but my connection yeah. to the Olympic Games this time round was significant. And, and uh, you know, we don't need to go into different reasons why I think that might have been. But I just felt really connected to the, this team for some reason and the Games. And I was really engaged with it a lot more. Well, look, yeah. one more question for you. Great. What sure, Paul. is... Your golden ticket, if you were to, to tell someone one thing to help them stay focused and to get into flow, what would you recommend? Um, yeah. Oh, that's a hard one. I've, I've, I, I kind of assume a lot. You know, I think we, we talk about that passion. I think it's it's doing, doing, doing an activity that you feel like you own. So having ownership of it's really important. So... I kind of feel like um, finding something, I don't care what it is, if it's work, social, personal, you know, arts, whatever it is, but finding that activity that you actually enjoy, but also that you're kind of good at because it's quite empowering to do something that you know you're good at and, and try and really challenge yourself in that to be even better at it or to, you know, to really expand on on it. So don't feel guilty doing something that you're good at. See it more as well. Hey, this is this is what I'm born to do. You know, I'm born to run, so I still run, but I also challenge myself within that capacity to have other life lessons, do the best I can. I still race and push myself 100%. So I don't take it for granted. I see it. I, I realise that I'm good at it, but I also want to be better at it and learn as much as I can about that pursuit that I love. Yeah. Love that. That's on point, mate. I love it. Well, Steve, you are a legend of a bloke, first and foremost, and uh, it's, it's a pleasure to uh, have got to know you over the last few years. And But I'm really grateful that you, you've come on the Inspired Peak Performance Flowcast and shared your experience and knowledge, and you are an inspiration to, to all of us. I'm a very normal bloke, Paul. It's great to chat, and I've really enjoyed that, you know, that, that obviously we've got a good... Um, communication so we chat you know and i've really enjoyed and hopefully the, the listeners out there get some benefit out of you know i ramble a bit but hopefully there's some stuff in there that you can apply to your own situation we're all having a go we're all normal people having a go and it's sharing those ideas that allow us all to grow and um be better for the for the, for the listening and the benefits of it hopefully uh, can be applied to everybody yeah appreciate it it's been great to chat mate i've enjoyed it yeah i've, I've loved it thanks so much steve and um yeah, well, hopefully we'll, uh, we might be able to do this again sometime in the future. Look forward to it. Thanks, Paul. 
Thank you for dialing into the Flowcast. I hope you took away some valuable insights to make your challenges and journey a little more epic. If you'd like to learn more about how we can help you find more flow and upskill your vision and mindset, check out our flow programs at www.inspiredpeakperformance.com.